thank you so much for having me and thank you all so much for listening. I'm going to use my 12 minutes to talk about why John Donne is, I think, wildly worth your time and what he can offer us now. So the power of John Donne's words once nearly killed a man. He was, uh, it was 1623, and he was the Dean of St. Paul's Cathedral, one of the most important positions in the English church at the time. And he had become, late in life, famous. He was 51, uh, with a, a really excellent beard, and he was famous across the city for sermons that made people laugh and weep with him. And on Ascension Day, he began to preach and thousands of people flocked to hear him speak. Too many flocked. And there was, a contemporary wrote at the time, a great crushing of people. And two or three were taken up dead for the time, which doesn't mean dead, it just means unconscious. There's no record in the contemporary accounts that he stopped. And there probably would have been had he done so. So it's likely that John Donne, Dean of St. Paul's, kept preaching in his rich and sonorous voice as the bruised bodies were taken up and carried off. About 12 years before that, the same man in poverty and obscurity, in a house full of children who he was ambivalent about, and a wife who was unwell, wrote a book, the first full-length treatise of a book about suicide, in which he argued that suicide is not always a sin. He was a man who wrote over and over in his letters how often he thought about killing himself, how deep his sorrow went, how much he experienced a daily horror. The book was dangerous. It was illegal to commit suicide at the time. Uh, in fact, one of those dark ironies, it was punishable by death. He put the book away to be neither burnt, he said, nor published. And he kept it safe and silent. And about a decade before that, the same man, then young, and I think this is important historically, absolutely gorgeous, with a really very impressive and nuanced moustache and a hat big enough to sail a cat in and an enormous ruff, had his portrait painted. And around it, he had written in Latin a not quite blasphemous quotation of Psalm 17, O Lady, light in our darkness, rather than O Lord. And that man was the author, I would claim, of perhaps the finest poetry about sex and love that the English language has yet been able to offer us. I think there are two reasons to adore Dunn. One of them is what he can tell us about the extremes of ourselves. Dunn knew dread. I was very lucky to briefly know um, the great late Hilary Mantel, and one of the things she once said was he was able to hold them both in his palms so tightly, love and dread. Dunn knew such sorrow. He was Catholic, born at a time when to be Catholic was to be persecuted. It's said, although there's not great records for this, that his great uncle was hung, drawn and quartered in front of him for being a Jesuit. It's certainly true that his uncle was thrown into jail for being a Jesuit into the Tower of London and that a young Dunn went there with his mother as a child, in fact, to disguise a meeting between two Jesuits as something that was innocent and familial. When he was 
2021, his little brother came with him to the inns of court where the two of them were to learn to be elegant gentlemen about town. His little brother wrongly thought that it would be possible to harbour a Catholic priest in his rooms. The priest was caught, the brother Henry was caught, and Henry was thrown into jail. And in a matter of days, the jail through which plague was running got to him. And before Dunn could visit him, his 19-year-old little brother died alone and in pain. Dunn had children. He had 12 babies, of whom six died. He lost his wife, Anne. Indeed, when he married Anne, he was thrown into jail in a way he absolutely didn't expect, and which created a darkness and a slough of despond through which it took many years to recover. He was constantly in pain, he frequently found himself near death. Dunn was one who walked in darkness so often that it became a daily commute. But Dunn also insisted, in a way that very few people have done as starkly and boldly and finely, on the importance of awe. He insisted throughout his life on wonder at humanity. He thought that we were a disaster, but a miraculous disaster. He had an idea that we were infinite. And that idea of infinity, he repeated over and over in his life. He invented uh, words. He was a great neologist. And one of the things he loved to do was add the word super before words that do not need an intensifier, super miraculous, super dying, super eternal, super infinite. He wrote, it is too little a thing to compare a man to the world. Compared unto a man, the world itself is a dwarf. He erupted from a tradition of desire that was Petrarchan, that was light and easy. And he insisted on bringing the brain and the body to coexist. He wrote, one might almost say her body thought. He knew that you could use your mind as a citadel. He wrote, be thine own palace or the world's thy jail. He was a man who believed, despite our faultiness, that sex was a way of answering a question that cannot be articulated but can be answered. He believed, tap a human and they ring with the sound of infinity. And this is something that I love for him, something that I think that we can take from him now, that, that we can cherish. And it leads us to the other reason that you might love done. One of them being that a man who has known so much dread, when they tour tell us of the opposite, of ravishments and of love, it is safer to believe them. And he was so great a love poet. Dunn erupted from a tradition of poetry that was still very much in the courtly tradition. So, for instance, someone like Sir Philip Sidney, magnificent in his way, was unafraid to rhyme love and dove. Um, one of his lovers has cheeks that are unto two white doves. And in another later poem, her shoulders are unto two white doves. And you do end up with the feeling that, you know, other birds are available. But Dunn says... Well, it's incredibly unlikely that your love will be like a dove. I mean, it might be. There are, though, parts of the human heart that are so absent of cliché that the only way to express them is to delve into the strangeness of language, sometimes to invent new words, 
and sometimes to bring bold images to clash against each other in unexpected ways that will shake us out of complacency and make us look again at how vertiginously odd it is to be in love, how wild, how enveloping, how sometimes full of spite and fear, how sometimes full of transcendence. He was one who wrote some of the grobbiest and most scurrilous love poetry of his age, most famously, of course, The Flea. Mark but this flea and mark in this how little that which thou deniest me is. Me it sucked first and now sucks thee, and in this flea our two bloods mingled be. When that was published after his death in 1633, his son, who was his editor, organised that the long S of sucked would be used the the F. It looks like an F. So um, the long S form. So that that line, me it sucked first and now sucks thee, takes on a uh, different and um, more ribald meaning if you wanted to reach for it. But he also wrote about the idea that sex might be a way through to something extraordinary. He wrote, this ecstasy doth unperplex and tell us what we love. And one of the questions that I get asked a great deal is, was he really having as much sex as uh, he is supposed to have been, if you take the poetry? And I think the answer is almost certainly not. There are several chapters about it in the book, in the same way that the second half of the book that I'm not going to have time to talk about this evening is about his religious career and the way in which he brought that same insistence on originality and vividness to bear. But also his love poetry offered wonders to the women it was for. We know that he wrote for Anne more. He punned on her name more and more, his wife, Anne Mom. He wrote, Methinks I lied all winter when I swore my love was infinite, if spring made it more. He had a sense that there might be a way through the chaos in, in love, in sex, in passion, in language that expresses them boldly and freshly. Near the end of his life, he grew harsher and colder, but he never ceased to insist. It is an astonishment to be alive, and it behoves you therefore to be astonished. And the thing we all know him for most, of course, is no man is an island. But that comes from the words that he thought he was writing on his deathbed, devotions upon emergent occasions, he believed he was writing in a great rush just before his death. He in fact survived and lived another eight years. But I think it is worth remembering that he has this sense that it is only from our interconnectedness that we take our meaning. It is only from attention to each other, from the ways that we can light each other, that we can find something worth standing on. And I'm just going to close by reading the very brief moment of that. No man is an island entire of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. If a clod be washed away by the sea, Europe is the less, as well as if a promontory were, as well as if a manner of thy friends or thine own were. Any man's death diminishes me, for I am involved in mankind. And therefore, never send to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. That connection, that sense of living vividness, 
I think is what we can take from Dunn. And I would recommend beyond all things that you perhaps go and find his poetry. Thank you so much. <laughs>